and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, saying, Come and see. Thunder Radio with Christian J. Pento. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today in the show, we are going to talk about what's been going on in the news, uh, just as things have... Uh, here a few days ago really died down over probably the top story in the Christian community, and that is the uh, the so-called revival at Asbury University there in Kentucky. And a lot of people have been talking about that. Was that a real revival? There's reports of other so-called revivals breaking out in different places. Are they real revivals? Uh, or is it just people singing music? And is, you know, as we said on the last program, how all of that's going to unfold, how it all plays out in the end remains to be seen, remains to be seen. Now, uh, what we did on this program, what I did was uh, show people, show the audience just from examples of people who have taught there what they represent in terms of their radical feminism, the fact that there is this push to promote the LGBT agenda, even though they're doing it in sort of this back and forth manner, it it and yet the whole while they're insisting that what they're doing is Christianity somehow. And what I've been thinking of here the past week in all of this. In fact, I was talking to a brother about it after church on Sunday, and I, it has made me rethink the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins in Matthew chapter 25, where, just to go over part of it, where, where Jesus says in uh, verse 1, he says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Now, what does the Bible tell us about those who are wise? Well, the Scripture says that the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, Job says to fear God, that is wisdom, that the wise are those who fear God, and of course they depart from evil. And so when they are told that something is contrary to God's law, contrary to God's commands, they turn away from it if they truly fear the Lord. Also, if they love the Lord, because the scripture says this is the love of God that we keep his commands. So people can't really claim that they are walking in the love of God if they're not willing to keep the commandments of God. I think that point is so imperative for us to make in the world and in the churches today because we're being told that if you actually believe God, if you stand on his word, if you preach his commands, then quite often we're, we're told, oh, that's unloving. 
because supposedly you're supposed to accept people, even in their sinful condition, not to accept them by the grace of God with the thought in mind that they're going, they're growing or maturing or, you know, they're, they're, they're repenting and something. No, not at all. But that you're supposed to accept their sinful condition. And you're supposed to lay hands of approval upon their sinful lifestyle. That's the part that becomes very difficult. And it is, I believe we have warnings about this throughout the New Testament. To me, most notably in the book of Jude, where Jude talks about those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They turn the idea that God is gracious and loving into a license to commit sin. And I believe this may give us some insight into understanding the Lord's warning about the foolish virgins. The wise virgins would be those who fear God and they depart from evil. Those who are foolish would not fear God, and hence it stands to reason they would not depart from evil. They would somehow tell themselves that they don't necessarily need to depart from evil. Okay, and we have many warnings about that. Uh, all the way through the New Testament. Now, going down in Matthew 25, where it says, The foolish took their lamps and, and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now, oil is typically a picture of the anointing oil. It's a, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and hence the grace of God. Oil really uh, signifies salvation, that, that the wise virgins are in fact new creatures. They are born again children of God. As the scripture says, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so, uh, as Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And so the wise are new creatures. They have oil in their lamps. They, they have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. But those who are not wise, those who are foolish, uh, they took no oil with them. Okay, so then verse 6, it says, And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Very interesting. Uh, and if you go read commentaries on these verses, there's lots of different opinions about what they mean. I think what, what I want to focus on, though, is where the foolish say to the wise, give us of your oil, and then the wise say, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. What does that mean? And could that somehow pertain to what we are seeing happening in the churches in our time. Well, 
I want to read part of this uh, commentary from the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary on verse 9, Matthew 25, verse 9. And here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says. Uh, it says, But the wise answered, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. The words, Not so, this is their commentary. Their, the words, Not so, it will be seen, are not in the original, where the reply is very elliptical. Just for the sake of the argument, yeah, not so in, in the King James is in italics, which typically signifies that they're supplied words. In the case that there be not enough for us and you, a truly wise answer this, and then they paraphrase it. Quote, and what then if we shall share it with you, why both will be undone? In other words, if we give you our oil, then we'll both be undone. We're, we're both basically going to lose the light of our lamps. Not only will your lamp not work, our lamp's not going to work either. Essentially, that's how the, that's how the uh, commentary is paraphrasing it. Now, the reason I find that very interesting and compelling is I've always wondered about this parable. How is it the foolish virgins come and they say, give us of your oil and the wise say, no, we're not giving you our oil. Uh, I have come to think, and this is where I am on understanding this parable. And that's why I'm reading this commentary, because I was reading all these different commentaries on it. That what we're seeing happen right now in the churches and with Christianity is you have all of these different groups you have the homosexuals, you've got the transgenders, you've got the, uh, the pagans, the Muslims with the ecumenists and so on. They're all trying to come and into the Christian world and they want Christianity, they want the churches to declare that they are righteous. They, they want Christians to lay hands of approval on them and somehow affirm that their sinful behavior, their rebellion against God, is somehow or other acceptable. It, it's almost like the foolish virgins are saying to the wise, give us your righteousness. Lay hands of approval on us and tell us that we are righteous the same as you are. That's how I'm seeing this parable. Because that is what we are seeing from all of these different groups, whether it's the LGBT movement, whether it is the ecumenical movement that wants Christians to somehow or other say that uh, Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and all these pagan religions are somehow or other equally valid or equally acceptable with Christianity. When that is simply not what the Bible says, and it's not what our Christian ancestors ever believed. And so it's as though the foolish virgins are calling the wise to compromise. And the wise are saying, not so. We're not going to go along with it. And when they say, go seek unto those who, where is it? Yeah, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now that reference, I think we could, we can, Look at what the scripture says, buy the truth and sell it not. 
The scripture says in Isaiah, why do you pay money for that which is not bread? Jesus says in Revelation, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried through the fire. So this idea of buying, there's only one person you can really buy righteousness from. That's God. And of course, it's not something that we can pay money for. These are, these are expressions, these are phrases that are being employed by God. But really, it's about obtaining these things by seeking the Lord. It's the Lord himself. He's the only source of grace and truth and righteousness and salvation. As the scripture says, salvation is of the Lord. And so it's as though the wise virgins are saying, no, you need to seek the Lord yourselves so that you can obtain the righteousness of God, so that you can become new creatures, so that you can be reborn of the Spirit of God. That's how I'm seeing this parable. And it has to do with not just what a lot of these reviews of this Asbury revival here, uh, that's part of it. But there's obviously a larger agenda that's going on in our country and really throughout the Western world and in all of these historically Christian countries. There is this call for compromise, this call for Christianity to stand down from the Word of God, from the commandments of God, and give in to pagan, unbelieving ideology. And so we're called to continue in the faith and to fight the good fight of faith, to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Praise the Lord. All right, we are going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about some things going on in the news. We're going to talk about this new quote from David Hogg. David Hogg is the anti-gun guy. Well, he's one of them. And he, uh, he's recently published an argument that Americans don't really have the right to bear arms, that supposedly that's a fabrication. We're also going to talk about what's going on in South Africa right now. They are having rolling blackouts in South Africa. In fact, we talked about this with Sean Wilcock when we interviewed him for our upcoming film. Uh, I know many of you have seen that interview uh, on YouTube that we posted there, but... That situation apparently has gotten progressively worse, and now it's being reported that South Africa is on the brink of a civil war. We're going to review some of their history and how it pertains to us here in the United States when we come back right after this. Adullam Films presents a stunning new documentary, The True Christian History of America, exploring the Bible-based Christian origins of the early American view of freedom, tracing the principles of liberty back to England and the Great Reformation. For many years, our schools have taught that the founding of our Republic was from the Deists or the Enlightenment in France. But is that truly the case? 
Did the Enlightenment first declare no taxation without representation or trial by jury? Were they the champions of freedom of speech or of the press or the right to bear arms? And why did Samuel Adams declare that the reign of political Protestantism would commence just before signing the Declaration of Independence? Filmed on location in both the United States and Europe, The True Christian History of America is now available at adullamfilms.com. That's adullamfilms.com. Now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Adullam Films presents an exciting new documentary, Bridge to Babylon, part three in an award-winning series on the untold history of the Bible. Dr. Jack Moorman calls it a masterful presentation of what is the single most important issue facing Christians today, the defense of the Bible as the Word of God. Why was the Bible changed in 1881? Why have so many churches abandoned biblical inerrancy? And what direction are scholars taking the scriptures today? Learn the truth in Bridge to Babylon, the sequel to A Lamp in the Dark and Tares Among the Wheat. Bridge to Babylon is now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Noise of Thunder Radio. Okay, we are back. Praise the Lord, you guys. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are... Uh, moving on now, we talked about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, and I shared some of my thoughts here recently. Uh, my recent thoughts on it, I, I, you know, I've I've known that parable for years. I've just never seen it in that light. The foolish virgins, as though they are asking the wise to lay hands of approval on them, to to let them know, to tell them that. Somehow or other, they are righteous uh, in the sight of God. And, uh, and then seeing that, that their response is really them telling, the wise telling them, go and seek the Lord. He's the one you really need to seek. All right, so we're moving on now to this story uh, about David Hogg. Many of you will remember David Hogg. He's a young guy. He looks very, very young, but he's very, very mean, sort of, you know, arrogant guy, uh, yelling and screaming about guns. And uh, a part of this anti-gun movement trying to undermine the Second Amendment. Look, folks, there's no way around it. The, the, these people are not out for magazines with shorter capacities or any of the rest of it. If we want to know what's going on, we have to look at what's happening at Georgetown University and with the Jesuit order. Uh, I know I keep saying this over and over again, but I say it because I believe it's absolutely true. The Jesuits have been calling for a repeal of the Second Amendment. That is the agenda. Repeal the Second Amendment. And we, we talked about the article that they, they published back in 2013, I think it was. And that was the headline, Repeal the Second Amendment. Anybody can look it up. 
under America Magazine. That's the ultimate end game. It is not just placing limitations and boundaries and and gun-free zones and stuff like that. All of those are just stepping stones to the greater conclusion, which is to disarm the country. That is the greater agenda. All right, so here, and part of what they're arguing now, and I've talked about this before from Dr. Alan Dershowitz, who's the Harvard Law professor. He pushed this narrative, which is a very dangerous narrative because it's false. It's completely false. But here's what David Hogg uh, tweeted. He said, quote, you have no right to a gun. You are not a militia. When you're talking about your Second Amendment rights, you're talking about a state's right to have what is today the National Guard. The modern interpretation of 2A is a ridiculous fraud pushed for decades by the gun lobby. That's what he said, end quote. Now, he is pushing and he has a series of tweets where he talks about this and he makes reference to the Heller decision and in 2008 and the narrative is we're hearing more and more from those on the left they are arguing that because District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008 declared and affirmed that individuals had the right to keep and bear arms they're arguing that nobody ever thought that individuals had the right to bear arms, private citizens. Nobody ever thought that until 2008. That's the first time, supposedly, that anybody ever thought that the right to bear arms applied to an individual, even though individuals had been owning arms going all the way back to 1607. I mean, where, where, where do they think the cowboys in, in the old cowboy movies got their guns from? And in the Old West, where do they think the farmers got their guns from who all had shotguns out in their farm? Where do they get their guns from? Uh, so this is, this is a, it's a false argument, but we keep hearing it over and over and over again. They're repeating it again and again and again. And so, uh, so I've spoken out about this. Now, if you hear that argument and you want to counter it, the way to counter that argument historically is with real history. The first challenge to the Second Amendment in the courts was Nunn versus Georgia in the year 1836. Nunn versus Georgia, 1836. That's the first time that there was ever a challenge in the courts over the right to bear arms. And the court's decision that they gave makes it very clear how the Second Amendment was seen and how it was interpreted. And so the court said this, they said, quote, the right of the whole people, old and young, men, women, and boys, and not militia only, to keep and bear arms of every description, not such merely as are used by the militia, shall not be infringed curtailed or broken in upon in the smallest degree. And then it goes on from there. But notice the clarity of that statement. That is a very, very clear statement. 
the right of the whole people, old and young, men, women, and boys, because they believed that you, you need to, especially young men, that from the time of childhood, young men should be taught how to use a firearm, you know, for hunting and target practice, that kind of thing, so that they will grow up with it. It will be a natural part of their way of life so that when they reach manhood, it's very second nature for them to pick up a firearm and, and know how to use it. Okay. Because the way that armies were developed for centuries is if, if the nation has to go to war, the king or the government calls all the men. The men are called to war. They've got to go grab their rifles, grab their, you know, their gunpowder and whatever knapsack they've got and be ready to go and go off and, and serve. That's what they were expected to do. So when they show up, this whole business of six weeks of basic training and, and this kind of thing that we do in modern times, that's a very modern approach. Quite often in times of war, when men showed up, they were expected to know how to serve right away. Maybe they had to do a few exercises to get them warmed up, that kind of thing. But generally speaking, you were supposed to know what you were doing. In fact, uh, Granville Sharp, who's one of the famous abolitionists, there's a quote that is often cited where he argued that the laws of England, quote, always required the people to be armed and not only to be armed, but to be expert in arms. That's his quote. So the common people were required by law going all the way back to King Alfred. Required to be armed and to be expert in arms. You had to know what you were doing. Uh, you, you had to show if you were called to war, you had to show up ready to go. Not show up and go, oh, I've never used a gun before. I'm not sure. How do you, how do you load this thing? No. That's no, you, yeah, that's that's not going to work. That is not going to work. But there's no question there is a movement, an ongoing movement, not just to undermine gun rights, but to ultimately abolish them. And I think we have to remember what the Jesuit goal is. And their goal, as they say in their article that they published on this, is that, yes, in the post-repeal America, in other words, once they can find a way to repeal the Second Amendment, God forbid, that in post-repeal America, some people will own guns, they said, for hunting and sporting and that kind of thing, but no one will have the right to own them. That's the key. They want to destroy the right to bear arms. That's the end game. And so we have to recognize that and not give in uh, to these deceptions along the way. And look at what's happening. Look what's happening to our southern border as they continue to allow hundreds of thousands, ultimately millions of illegals unvetted into our country. People who are criminals, who are drug dealers, people who are bringing these poisons into our country. I mean, it's reported that, that fentanyl alone 
is responsible for the death of, of more than 100,000 people in 2022 being brought in through the Mexican border. And there are some who are arguing that the fentanyl is being brought in, that China is responsible for this whole fentanyl poisoning. That's one of the arguments that's being made. Okay, now with China in mind again, we have these reports that are ongoing that China has set up these secret police stations in the United States. In the United States, the Epoch Times, they've got an article on this, a recent one, where the headline says, quote, We have been blind. Representative Gallagher warns of Chinese police outposts in U.S. Chinese police outposts in the United States. Okay. And uh, they show a photo here with Representative Mike Gallagher, who's a Republican out of Wisconsin, speaks at a press conference and rally in front of the America Chang Lee Association, highlighting Beijing's transnational repression in New York City. And this is February 25th that this, uh, this photo was taken. But you've got uh, people from the Asian community holding up signs, stop CCP, free China, CCP out of USA. Right? Chinese Communist Party out of the USA. Chinese people do not want them here. And why? The reason why is because what they're reporting is that they're here, they're setting up these police stations here to go after Chinese nationals in the United States who they believe are somehow or other betraying the Chinese homeland. That's the idea. So apparently they're not necessarily going after non-Chinese Americans, at least not yet. But here's what the, uh, the article says. The article says, quote, members of the House Select Committee on China are pledging to redouble their efforts to counter Beijing's ongoing threats to its targets on U.S. soil. Standing in front of a now shuttered overseas Chinese police outpost in downtown Manhattan on February 25th and surrounded by dozens of pro-democracy activists, Representative Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the House Select Committee on China, liken the threats from the Chinese Communist Party to those of a mafia. Quote, they buy off politicians, multinational organizations, companies, and in some cases, law enforcement. They use muscle and threats instead of persuasion. And like the mafia, they aren't afraid to make people disappear. These are quotes from U.S. Representative, a Republican, Mike Gallagher, out of Wisconsin. So, I mean, I mean, it, it's just, it's remarkable, the idea I, 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 that we have a foreign country that's setting up little police stations in our country and operating on American soil. This is just unheard of. As, as a guy who grew up back in the 1970s and 80s, you got to understand, folks, those of you who are younger out there, those of you who are older, maybe in my age group, 
you know full well what I'm talking about. This is unheard of. You don't mess around on American soil. Our government would never tolerate anything like that from anybody. But now we have people running the country who are very clearly, systematically destroying our national sovereignty. We've just gone through this deal with these Chinese spy balloons. We've had literal Chinese spies all over the country. President Trump is warning that there's thousands of them. And now we've got Chinese police stations. This is why on uh, the last show, I went over that, uh, that audio from Larry Grothwall, where he talks about how the Weather Underground wanted China to occupy part of the United States. Well, look what's happening. It's decades later. It's, it's now 50 years later, 50 plus years later. But it is, well, I wouldn't say it's beginning to happen. It's probably been going on for many years that they've been systematically infiltrating. But it's not because the Chinese are so clever. It is because our deep state is betraying us. The powers in Washington, these hidden powers are betraying our country. That's why this is happening. There's no way they would be able to enter into the United States and operate like this unless they had help from the CIA, the FBI, and the State Department. And, and when I say help, the help might be nothing more than just looking the other way. I don't know. Uh, it may be a lot more extensive than that. But clearly, they're not willing the powers of our federal government are not willing to enforce our national sovereignty. They're allowing the southern border to be compromised. They're allowing our political system to be compromised at a variety of levels. And America is moving in a very, very troubling direction. Now, at this point, we remember what Jesus said. He said, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, I think we should be wary of what's going on. I mean, there's no question that Christians in other countries have sometimes suffered terrible things because of these sort of conspiracies, quite frankly. I mean, you realize that conspiracy is just you got two or more people planning typically in secret to do something sinister or bad or evil. And the idea that there's no conspiracies going on is absurd. Uh, obviously, there are. But we're not called to allow ourselves to be shaken in our faith. We trust the Lord. We trust and believe that all things work together for good to those that love God. But at the same time, we believe in being alert and taking heed that no man deceive us and that we're standing ready to respond perhaps uh, as Esther responded in the book of Esther, perhaps as God commands his watchmen to respond in Ezekiel, in whatever way, perhaps as Elijah responded, dealing with the prophets of Baal, having a showdown with them on Mount Carmel, however the Lord calls us to stand for His righteousness, 
during our time upon the earth. May we have the courage and the conviction to do it. All right, so we've got the Chinese police department situation going on. Okay, now South Africa. Here's, uh, here is an article from the American Journal posted on Infowars.com. Red alert, South Africa on verge of total civilizational breakdown as electric grid collapses. Now, the reason I think this is so important, as I've talked about before, what they are doing, what the globalists and the Jesuits and so on are doing in South Africa, they are also doing in America. And really, what they have done in South Africa is the playbook for how they are planning to take down America if they can get away with it. We hope they will not get away with it. So the electric grid collapsing. Some of you will remember when I interviewed Sean Wilcock, when he and I were trying to set up the timing for the, the Zoom call, the interview, uh, part of what we had to work around was what they call load shedding there in South Africa. And it's where they do like these, these blackouts of the power, the power shut off for five, eight, 10 hours at a time. And they, they do it on this schedule. And I asked uh, Sean why it is that they're doing that. And he's talking about how it's because of how these power companies are being managed. They're just not being managed well. And so as a result, they have these black, these rolling blackouts that happen and they engage in load shedding, as they call it where they shut down the power for hours at a time. But apparently they develop some kind of a schedule for it so that people can be warned when they're going to shut the power down. And so what Sean was telling me is he said, well, I think we can do the interview on this day at this time unless the, the power shutdown schedule changes. You know, and he says, I'll have to let you know. It, it was, uh, I, I mean, of course, I've never heard of anything like this. I mean, we've had power outages here in the U.S., but nothing like this. And so, but apparently this is part of the ongoing reality there in South Africa. And it's all the result of the post-apartheid takeover of the government by these communists. And communists always ruin everything in a government. And for a people, they ruin the economy. They make the day-to-day -day living of the common people deliberately more difficult. Because if people have to struggle just to go and buy bread and to put gas in their car and to, to do the ordinary things of life, then they're preoccupied with that and they don't have time to plan and plot and come up with a scheme to oppose the government. That's one of the, the tactics that the communists use. Okay, well, now this whole load shedding thing. They are saying, you know, like two days ago, Business Tech says businesses prepare for grid collapse in South Africa. Grid collapse. They are now arguing that they are on the verge of total civilizational breakdown because of the electric grids. Now, the reason this is important to us is there are all these stories that have been showing up in the news 
about people sabotaging the power grids here in the United States. Food storages, food storage centers are suddenly being, you know, catching on fire here in the United States, being burned down. And people are suspicious as to why it's happening. Is it, are these really all accidents or could this be somehow or other deliberate? People are asking the question. Here is a report on the issue from Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Listen. So just moments before we went to air tonight, a plane apparently crashed at a General Mills plant, a food plant in Covington, Georgia. Six tractor trailers were reportedly on fire. We're seeing pictures from the scene right now. This is the second time in a week that something like this has happened. What's going on here? Well, the story gets weirder. Food processing plants all over the country seem to be catching fire. A couple of days ago, a fire destroyed the headquarters of Azure Standard, one of the largest organic food distributors in the country. At the end of last month, a fire severely damaged a fresh onion packing facility in South Texas. In Oregon, a potato chip processing plant just reported a boiler explosion that sent workers to the hospital. Okay, so that's kind of, uh, that gives you an overview of what is being reported, not just by Tucker Carlson, but, but by a lot of other people out there. They are taking note of the fact that uh, food storage centers are being destroyed, typically by fire, but by other means as well. Now, the reason this is important, folks, is because historically, whenever your radical revolutionaries want to take over a country, uh, your, your Marxist-type revolutionaries, creating a deliberate food shortage is one of the tactics that they employ. Uh, this goes all the way back to the French Revolution. We talk about this in our film, Megiddo, The March to Armageddon, how it is said that the Jacobins, who were the French revolutionaries, they created a deliberate grain shortage. They sabotaged the grain market so that the people would not have any food, and then they would blame the king. And then they blame the king, and then they use that as the impetus to overthrow the monarchy. Okay? Another detail of that whole thing was that not only did they smash the grain market, but then when the king, the government, tried to solve the issues, they had their people uh, involved in the uh, French uh, parliament there, to sabotage any attempt at solving the problem. So that's what they do. They create the problem, and then politically they manipulate to prevent anybody from solving it. We have to recognize that historically this is done deliberately. The communists and the socialists, they want people standing in bread lines. They want people like in Cuba uh, sitting in a line for hours just to get a tank of gas in their car. They want these things to happen, okay? So that's why people are suspicious, and I think rightly so. Let's listen to just a, a, a little bit of the dialogue. Uh, Tucker Carlson interviews somebody about this. Listen to what he says about the suspicious nature of what's happening. Here it is. So industrial accidents happen, of course, but this is a lot of industrial accidents at food processing facilities at the same time the president's warning us about food shortages. They're getting hit by planes and catching fire. What is going on here exactly? Jason Rance hosts a radio show in Seattle and joins us to put it into perspective. Jason, good to see you. 
Good to see you. Yeah, obviously, when something happens every so often, you obviously hope that there's no significant damage and certainly no one gets hurt. But you kind of write it off. It's not that big of a deal. Accidents happen. But when you've got well over a dozen food processing plants and warehouses getting destroyed or seriously damaged over just the last few weeks at a time when the food supply is already vulnerable, it's obviously suspicious. And it could lead to serious food shortages. That's why some folks are now wondering, well, number one, what's going on? And you've got some people speculating that this might be an intentional way to disrupt the food supply. Okay, and I should say, uh, just so you understand that we're not fear-mongering and we don't believe in fear-mongering, that uh, the other side of this argument from the NFPA National Fire Protection Association, NFPA Journal, uh, they argue that there's really nothing to be concerned about uh, and that the number of fires is, while alarming, it's not really that unusual. That's what they argue. But what I'm not hearing from anybody at this point is an analysis. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, we had this, you know, a certain number of uh, fires, food storage fires in 2018 or 19. Okay, but they're not telling anybody what num what's the average number of food storage fires over let's say the last 10 to 20 years how many food storage facilities ordinarily normally catch fire on an annual basis spread out over a period of let's say 10 or 15 20 years but they're not doing that they're going back a couple of years but for all we know uh, they could have been sabotaging our food production for several years while nobody was reporting on it, and now suddenly people are starting to be alarmed. But we all remember what happened to the stores during COVID. We all remember how there were shortages very, very quickly. Not only that, but the, the, the food storage fires are not the only thing going on in our country. We've got a whole number of issues that are happening at the same time. And this is why the, the whole situation in South Africa, the history of it, and how their problems have progressed over a number of years. They didn't happen all at once. This is spread out over years. And how their problems mirror what we're seeing happen in our country. There's attacks on various electricity grids, power grids in the United States, we, we've just had this chemical spill there in Ohio, and there's, there's this destabilizing of our ordinarily well-run system. And when I talked to Sean Wilcock, uh, much like when I interviewed several years before that, when I interviewed Dr. Peter Hammond, who lives in South Africa also, the old South Africa ran very, very well. It was a very well-oiled machine, as it were. And it operated, based on the stories that are told, very much like the United States, just a smaller version where, where there's a tremendous amount of efficiency. But here in America, here in the U.S., we are seeing the, the efficiency of government break down one step at a time. And it's important that we realize in South Africa, this did not happen overnight. This has been an ongoing problem one year after another after another, but it's escalating. It's getting worse and worse. And now it's reaching the point where they're saying they are right on the brink of a civil war. Of course, we have heard this about South Africa again and again over the last couple of years. 
people have been predicting a civil war will happen at any moment. But apparently these uh, this load shedding where, where they have these blackouts that happen, this is the new problem that is creating tensions and making people angry. Uh, and so they're warning that this could lead to rioting, much like a civil war. Now, I want to go back in time and analyze an article from the 1960s, a New York Times article from the 1960s about what South Africa used to be like before the apartheid government was taken down. All right, so this is the New York Times, April 12, 1964. April 12, 1964. And the headline says, South Africa, the time bomb ticks. Now, this time bomb, think about that, 1964, I was born in 67. So the time bomb ticks, this is more than 50 years ago. So the overthrow of a great and strong country doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen. It can happen. Uh, but here's the, the full title. It says, South Africa, the time bomb ticks. The country's white minority seems more firmly in control than ever. But as independent black Africa spreads southward, a day of crisis approaches. Notice how it says independent Africa spreads southward. In other words, there's all these different countries in Africa. Okay, Africa is the continent and there's many different countries there. You have immigrants, black immigrants coming from the other countries down southward into South Africa. And I've spoken to several people who live there and they all testify and confirm, yes, you know, it's it, it just like what we're dealing with today with all of these Latin American immigrants coming up through the southern border. And many of them are coming in illegally and they're demanding rights and they want the right to vote and they want jobs and they want education. They want all this other kind of stuff. This is what South Africa dealt with all the way back in the 1960s. They were dealing with it. And remember, the word apartheid means to be separate from, a separation between the white population and the blacks, because the blacks have a totally different way of life. And the argument was, nope, that separation cannot exist. That separation needs to be removed. So let's look at this article. Here's what it says. Listen to this. Quote, it is easy to forget inside South Africa that there is a world outcry against the country and that the republic itself is in a state of virtual civil war. The United Nations Special Committee on Apartheid has adopted a report urging the organization to, quote, respond forcefully against South Africa's racial policies and the powerful Afro-Asian bloc is seeking ways to compel the Security Council to act. So notice that it's the United Nations, which is a communist organization, that is instigating the idea that there has to be a forceful response because the state is supposedly in a, in a, in a state of civil war. That's what they're saying. But was that really true? 
Notice how the article begins. It begins with the words, it is easy to forget inside South Africa that there's a world outcry against the country. Well, why is it easy to forget? Well, they're going to explain. This is very, very important in my opinion. Okay, it says, quote, in South Africa, the white areas are so quiet, so prosperous, so well organized that there is very little obvious sense of tension. The newspapers are full of accounts of boxing matches, fashion shows or world events, and there is scarcely any news of discontent from the black three quarters of the population. The black servants seem uh, seen, seen or seem contented. The black messengers laugh from their bicycles and the relatively prosperous merchants of the black middle class seem hardly ever to talk about politics. In the past two years, white South Africa has been booming fantastically. All around Johannesburg, the richest city on the continent, new suburbs are being pegged out in the open veld, new swimming pools are being built, new highways are being constructed to carry the stream of big American cars in and out of the city. It is very easy for white South Africans to believe that their policy of apartheid or segregation has been vindicated and that whatever the rest of the world may think, theirs is a solid and peaceful nation. Only very occasionally will you see some signs of actual discontent, such as whitewashed on a bare wall in the middle of the city, the simple slogan, apartheid means war. Okay. Uh, and then the article goes on to talk about how the, uh, the boring ordinariness uh, of South Africa and saying that, wow, while everybody, while all these communists in the United Nations and these radical leftists uh, are freaking out because uh, they're not able to have their communist agenda in a peaceful, peaceful, prosperous country where the people are actually happy and contented. Well, we better go in there. We better find a way to turn the country upside down. Don't they know they're supposed to be upset? Don't they know they're supposed to be angry? Don't they know they should be rioting in the streets? Well, no, they didn't know that. Why? Because they had acceptable circumstances. They had peaceable circumstances. That's why they didn't know that. Because there really wasn't anything wrong with how they were living their lives. The apartheid policies were, I mean, really, in reality, they're the most sensible policies. If you examine them. Now, we're not talking about abuses of power. We're, we're not talking about mistreating people. We're not talking about anything like that. But in terms of, of respecting one culture versus another culture and recognizing that there are cultural differences that are simply irreconcilable. I mean, even in a relationship, if you have a relationship between a man and a woman and they're not getting along and they start getting violent with each other, I mean, there'll be a restraining order. The court will order a restraining order and say, okay, this person's over here, that person's over there, and they are not to come near each other. A separation will be ordered by the court. 
to prevent something bad from happening. That is a perfectly logical thing to do. So that's really what the apartheid was. It was recognizing that the black Africans have a certain way of life. They have witch doctors. They have, you know, pagan practices that go back centuries. They have cultural habits and things like that that are specific to them. That's how they live. That's how they want to live. Uh, whites, on the other hand, have a different way of life. And they have certain expectations for how things should be done. The two cultures do not agree. It was a wise decision to keep them separate. Okay? That was a wise decision. I hate to say it because I, I always grew up as somebody who supported the idea of desegregation here in the United States. And generally, I do. Generally, I think people should be free to associate with each other as they wish. Generally, that's my view. However, the problem is when you have, and I've talked about this before, the problem is not so much desegregation. The problem is when you have forced integration, where the government comes in and starts forcing uh, people from one culture into another culture in ways that are just not compatible. It's almost like a forced marriage. You have a young woman and her, her parents or her family are telling her, okay, you have to marry that guy. And she says, no, I don't want to marry him. Well, tough luck. You have to marry him anyway. Do we believe in forced marriages? No, we don't. We, we, we think that that's denying fundamental freedom. People should have the freedom to marry who they wish. And the same is true with association and, and who, you know, you should have the freedom to associate with the people you want to associate with. But we have to remember as Christians now, while on the one hand, these things are typically being argued from a racial perspective, the greater issue is a faith perspective. That is the much greater issue because the faith of a people leads to their morality. What, what are the moral standards that they're going to uphold? What they believe about God, whether or not they walk in the fear of God, will have everything to do with the choices they make on a daily basis and what moral boundaries they set for themselves, their children, their families, and their people. And so the, the South Africans who were white were 99%, as I understand it, Christians, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians descendants of Reformed Protestant, Dutch Reformed Protestants, okay? And they recognized that there, there are certain differences. They were trying to improve the quality of life for the uh, black population, but the communists were demanding a level of equality that, that would be provided by the government rather than achieved by African people working hard and moving themselves forward as a culture. You see what I'm saying? So, so saying, not, not just saying, all right, well, well, if the blacks want to build a business or have an industry, sure, but let them do that. Let them go. You know, if they want, they want to build a, an airport or something, great. They can build an airport and they can provide 
you know, you know, flying services to people, build airplanes, train their pilots and say, hey, we can fly you to different parts of the continent. That's not that's not what they did. So it, it wasn't as though the blacks didn't have the right of industry to develop their own industries. No, they wanted to forcibly integrate them into whatever white culture was doing. That's a very, very different thing. It's a very different problem. Okay? And they have been using the same uh, tactics and techniques here in the United States. That's what affirmative action policies are about. And yes, affirmative action policies are reverse discrimination. It's where you discriminate against the white population and you hand opportunities, jobs, money, education, etc., to minority groups, and you push the white population out of the way. That's the practice that people object to. But you see, this is a very manipulative, very Jesuitical, because this, this, is, this is the reason why the Glorious Revolution happened back in 1688. But instead of blacks and whites, it was Protestants and Catholics. And they were using, or King James II, I should say, who was a Jesuit, we're going to talk about that in the new film, was using affirmative action policies to forcibly integrate his fellow Catholics into areas of Protestantism. Not to get us off track, but uh, there's a whole history behind this method of doing things this way. So you had people, and when, I, when I'm reading this article, this New York Times article, that, wow, if you go to South Africa, they don't have all this turmoil. If you go to South Africa, there are people who seem, both the whites and the blacks, seem to be at peace, and they're contented, and they're productive, and they're successful. Wow, don't they realize that the United Nations, the communist United Nations, uh, insists that they've got to be basically turned upside down. Their country's got to be turned upside down. Just can't have a successful country where people are at peace together and living quietly and minding their own business. Can't have that. Got to turn it upside down. It reminds me of what was said about the Jesuit order when they were abolished back in 1773, that they had gone into countries where people were perfectly at peace, you know, as, as perfectly as you will be in this world, they were dwelling peaceably together, and yet the Jesuits went in and turned everything upside down through their methods of revolution and fomenting agitation. And that's what you're seeing with uh, this article where it says apartheid means war. There's got to be got to be a war. Got to got to end the separation. Can't be any separation. Everybody must be forcibly assimilated. But remember, the word separation is, and apartheid is also the same meaning as the word holy. God says, be you holy even as I am holy. Be you separate. No, God doesn't want us intermingled in with immoral, ungodly people. It's one thing to be a witness to them, a light to them, to reach out to them and, and teach them the word of God and preach the gospel and compel them toward repentance. But we are called to be careful 
uh, about allowing ourselves to be immersed in worldliness and ungodliness. Because God's warning is that the ungodly, the idolaters, and so on, they will seek to turn you away from the Lord your God. That's the danger. And so it's part of when God says, what is, what is the first command, Jesus says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And those who love the Lord obey the Lord. So you cannot allow an influence in your life that is going to turn your heart away from the Lord. It's going to turn you away from following God and obeying the Lord. This is why God commanded Israel to drive out the heathen from the land of Canaan. There were certain types of uh, pagans that they could make a peace treaty with, and yet there were others that the Lord says, no, you don't make any treaty with them because they're going to seek to turn you away from the Lord your God. You've got to drive them out. You've got to maintain a separation between them and you. And so, unfortunately, these principles have been lost in modern times through World War I, World War II, the, the fundamental teachings that our ancestors understood have been cast aside. So now our country is being taken down a path very similar to what happened in South Africa. That's why I think we should pay attention as we're hearing about their rolling blackouts there. And we're hearing about uh, what, what is the direction of this so-called racial equality that they claimed they were promoting. Remember, the communists were the ones behind this. Did they really want racial equality? No, now they are promoting the idea of getting rid of all the whites. Now we just need to get rid of all of them. That's, that's where their dialogue is headed. That's where it's headed. That all whites must leave. And they must take their land uh, without compensation, land appropriation without compensation. In other words, steal the land from all the white farmers, take it away from them by force, and give them nothing in return. Don't pay for it, no compensation. Just take the land and throw them out. That is the direction that this whole thing is moving in. Now, how it's going to end up ultimately, I don't know. When I, when I interviewed Sean Wilcock and I asked him, I said, do you, you think they want to just get rid of all the white people? He ultimately said, no, not exactly. He said he wants them disen they want They want the whites disempowered, but they don't really want them all to go because they know that it's the whites who developed all the industry. Everything worth having there, the airplanes, the automobiles, the hospitals, the schools, etc., all of it was designed by the whites. And they're the ones who generate industry and produce the wealth of the country. Most of it. So they don't want to get rid of them for that reason. But they want them disempowered and they want this whole black empowerment principle to dominate the, uh, the politics and the direction of the country. But we have to recognize that is where, that's the direction they're moving in here. This is why they've developed things like critical race theory. And they want to get it into the schools and brainwash our kids with it. It's why they've developed things like the Black National Anthem, which they did at the Super Bowl here, this last Super Bowl. 
All of these are systematic acts of aggression to try and push whites out of power. That's where it's all headed, folks. And really, again, white really means uh, Christians who believe the Bible and the, the true principles of our Constitution. That's really what it means. That's what they mean when they say white or white supremacy. They're not really talking about white people. But you have to remember, it was Anglo-Saxons who developed Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights, and the U.S. Constitution, all of which the communists want to sabotage. That's what they're looking to sabotage. It's not really people with white skin. That's secondary. The main thing is the laws of our country that protect life, liberty, and property. When you've got a movement like with the communists and the socialists and these uh, uh, World Economic Forum people who are saying you're going to own nothing, you'll pay rent and supposedly be happy, how are you going to own nothing? As I've said before, there's only one way. They steal everything you have. They, they abolish private property ownership. You can't do that if God's law and the principles of Magna Carta and our Constitution are in place. You can't do it because you cannot rob people of their private property. So those things have got to be taken out of the way in order for the globalists to get what they want. And so that is why they are constantly assaulting, especially in America, the whole idea of white folks with their Bibles and their guns. They are enemy number one. There's no question. But of course, we know that it's not just white people who believe the Bible, and it's not just white people who have a right to keep and bear arms. In our country, we believe these things pertain to everyone. Praise the Lord. Uh, and uh, it's, it's grievous to see how they are manipulating the black community because there are many blacks who are wonderful people and they don't go in for all of this race-baiting nonsense. They speak against it. They shun it. Uh, they want nothing to do with it. They realize that their culture is being wrongfully manipulated uh, to, to hate America, to hate white people, and they, they want us divided and really hating each other. But that's why we've got to overcome these things by, as the Bible says, by the blood of the Lamb, by the mercy of God, recognizing that we're all sinners and we need God's mercy and forgiveness through faith in the Son of God. And then we need to give obedience to the Word of God and God's law and commandments that will not allow us, if we remain within the boundaries God has given us, God's law will not allow us to fall into the, the pitfalls that other countries have fallen in and have been overthrown by going from one extreme to the other. That's why God says we should obey him on both the right hand and the left hand. So we don't go to one extreme or the other. We obey the whole counsel of God to the best of our ability. All right, brethren, that is going to do it for us today. That is our show. We will stop it there, but we will be back next time as the Lord leads us. Until then, God bless you guys. I'm Chris Pinto, and you've been listening to Noise of Thunder Radio. Noise of Thunder Radio.